you would please stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. This morning's passage is from John 1, verses 1, 2, and 14, which can be found on page 886 of the Pew Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's Word. I ask that you would uh, please keep your Bibles open to John chapter 1 as we pray together this morning. God, we open a famous and challenging passage of Scripture this morning. And as we do so, we ask that um, by your grace and your love for your church, that you would give us wisdom and understanding, that you would cause us to rejoice by having received the truth that we see in this passage this morning. God, we come before you today, into your presence today, called into your presence by your grace and your mercy, and we do so with humility. And we do so in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, the opening lines to books are usually pretty important. Perhaps you have observed that. Often the opening lines are the last lines written for authors who have labored long over their work and have carefully chosen each word of the book they've composed. And for John, who was the last of the gospel writers to finish composing his account of Jesus' life, this is likely the case. It is certainly the case that the opening words of this book are crucially important. They establish the themes and the ideas that the whole book will go on to explore. And scholars and theologians and church members have been fascinated fascinated with them ever since their first publication. It does not take long studying this book, the book of John, to get a sense for the care and the precision that John used in its authorship. The layers and the subtleties that are woven throughout confirm that John was using extreme care in recording the events to which he was eyewitness, as we'll see during our study through the book of John next year. The Holy Spirit equipped each gospel writer to consider different nuances and facets of Jesus' life and ministry, and John took his time carefully considering each and every word that he used. Now, obviously, I don't mean to imply that the other gospel writers were careless uh, in their writing of their accounts of Jesus' life or that they rushed through the process, but from the days of the early church onward, students of Scripture have noted things about the book of John that make it stand out. It is unique among the four gospels, emphasizing emphasizing particular aspects of Jesus' nature and ministry and characterized by a literary artistry that sets it apart from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I know that for those of you who were here last week, when Bruce walked us through the opening line of this book, you may be getting anxious this morning. Uh, Because after all, Bruce last week only covered half of one verse, and this week the sermon will cover only slightly more than that. And I can see the gears turning already, and you have calculated that our study through the book of John will carry us through the next decade. But rest assured, uh, we will pick up the pace next week. But this morning, 
just as last week, we are honing in on just a few words from the opening of this book because, as is often the case, the opening words of this great book are critical and because it is clear that John meant us to take our time with them. The concepts that these words convey shape the way that the entire book is understood, and though they themselves can be difficult to fully wrap our minds around. For some of us, they can be pretty intimidating, actually. One theologian who's commenting on the opening of John's gospel said that John's combination of simplicity and profundity often leaves us wondering whether we have caught all of the passage's meaning. And that is how I have always felt reading John 1. Like there's more to it than I'm able to see. Even though John is not using any complicated language or difficult grammar, it just feels deep. And throughout the history of the church, that sense has been affirmed. For 2,000 years, church traditions from across the spectrum have turned to these verses at critical moments, at baptisms and funerals, at ordinations and ecumenical councils, and at the opening of theology textbooks, these words are invoked. John spent years and years writing this book designed to introduce us to one specific person, and in these opening words, he's paving the way to make that introduction. And even if we have Jesus in mind as we read these words, it won't be until verse 29 that John will actually give us Jesus' name. Not like Matthew and Mark, who announced that they're writing about Jesus in the opening sentence of their books. Because for now, John is preparing his readers for who he wants them to meet in this book. And he does that with these cryptic and evocative lines. In the beginning was the Word. John, or Bruce focused on last week. The eternal Word was there in the beginning at the origin of all things. And he is the personification of God's wisdom, the grand principle that gives meaning and structure to life itself. But John goes even further than that in the rest of the verse that we're looking at this morning. The Word was not only eternal like God and meaningful like God, but He was with God and the Word was God. That right there, this opening line, is where many of John's readers in the first century would have choked on their coffee. One verse in to this book, and John has already completely bamboozled every first century Jewish reader who has picked up this book. Because for them, this opening line was not only confusing, but probably even blasphemous as well. For much of John's audience, monotheism was part of national identity and cultural pride. It was central to their identity and at the heart of their religious practice. The nations which had surrounded Israel, which had gone to war with Israel and ex exiled the Israelite people and colonized the, the Israelite people over the last several cent centuries, all had one thing in common. They worshipped many gods. They had scores of gods for specific regions who ruled over specific aspects of life and were often at odds with one another. And Jewish people in the ancient Near East knew that they were unique because they worshipped the one true God over all regions, all nations, all aspects of life, who is not rivaled or challenged by anyone or anything. And it set them apart from all the nations that surrounded them, from all of their neighbors and all the people that oppressed them, 
Because while others were willing at times to adopt the gods of their neighbors, adding them to their own religion, God's people trusted in one God alone. And even though at certain times in Israel's history, Israel had compromised her fidelity to God, during the first century that was not the case. The Jewish people who were living at the time under the umbrella of the Roman Empire had defiantly refused the Roman religious system, though more out of national pride than faithfulness to God. Because for them, it was a point of pride to know that their God was singular, that he alone ruled and was unrivaled by the lesser idols of other nations. And so John's opening comment that the word was with God and the word was God was controversial, to say the least. It declares that this eternal word is on the same divine plane as God himself. And further than that, John refers to the word as a he at the opening of verse 2 before restating that he was in the beginning with God because the word is a person. He has been with God and he himself is God. John is opening the the meticulously crafted book that he's written about Jesus' life and ministry by pointing to the Trinity, to the central Christian idea that God exists in one divine substance and three distinct persons for all eternity. And I know that some of you this morning hear me talking about the Trinity, and you're saying to yourself, giddy up, let's get theological this morning. And some of you are thinking, wake me up when we get to the application at the end. (laughs) Because the fact is, it can be hard for us to recognize how reflecting on the Trinity makes much of a difference for us in our daily life in the year 2019. But John, who was eyewitness to Jesus' life and ministry, who saw his death and who knew him in resurrection and who was sent by him as an apostle to lead and establish the church, wants to start right there with this idea. Because without thinking about it, without reflecting on it, we will fail to understand Jesus himself. So he makes these two statements. He was with God and he was God. It's a fine line to walk and a difficult one. But John does so with very simple language. The word was with God. He is distinct from God the Father. The being that John's readers in the first century had in mind when they opened their Bibles. But the Word is not a second God. He is not independent of the Father. Together with the Spirit, as John will make clear later in this chapter, they are one God. It is a mind-bending concept that, difficult as it is for us to understand, was entirely revolutionary for many of John's readers in the first century. But it undergirds everything that John will record in this gospel. It shapes and clarifies all of the contents of this book because John wants us to know who we are meeting in this book. He wants us to get a sense of the deepness, the gravity of the situation, and the sheer magnitude of what is about to unfold. And even though John has not introduced Jesus by name yet, it's clear that he wants us to grasp the importance of who it is we are going to meet. It reminds me of a passage from a well-known book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I know that I referenced that book in a sermon just a couple weeks ago, and now I'm referencing it again. 
And I'll warn you this morning that um, actually Jessica and I are rereading all of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia books right now, so this is probably just the beginning of the, uh, <laughs> the references that I will make to those books in the coming months. In case you're unfamiliar with the story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the main characters have stumbled into a hidden world called Narnia, which is ruled by a wicked witch who calls herself the Queen. She has a magical power, and she rules over all the creatures there as a ruthless slave master, and she has made it always winter, but never Christmas throughout the whole realm. But rumors have begun to swirl that Aslan, the great lion who represents Jesus in this story, is coming. And as the story begins to gain momentum, and as we read it, we are preparing ourselves for the battle that we know is coming. And then right in the middle of the book, as this momentum is growing, Santa Claus appears. And I have always thought that's a rather strange part of the story, and if you've read it, perhaps you did too. The kids are hiding from the queen one day, and as they're hiding, Santa Claus drives up on his sleigh and gives them Christmas gifts. It's a very strange moment in the book, and after I read it for the first time, I thought, what was that all about? But in the very next chapter, while the queen is chasing after the children to capture them, the narrator points out to us that birds are singing, and blades of grass are poking through the snow, flowers are blooming, and the sound of running water from rivers and streams is filling the forest because spring is coming. And even before you meet the hero of this story, you begin to ask yourself, who is this? That just the word of his coming can weaken the witch's magic. In the land where it is always winter and never Christmas, Santa has come and the frost is breaking. Who has such power? Who commands the spring to break forth and life to bloom again in Narnia? It's a terrific part of the book because it is full of anticipation. And reading it now, I feel the very same way that I do every time I read it. I cannot wait for Aslan to arrive in the story. Even though I've read it before, I feel the same eagerness to see what Aslan will do and how he will save the day. I can't wait for him to arrive because of the way that C.S. Lewis paved the way for him to come into the story. I can't wait to read about the one whose name is power over evil, at whose mention the grip of evil on the land begins to weaken. Aslan doesn't simply appear in the story. In fact, even though he is the hero of the story, he doesn't actually arrive until about two-thirds of the way through the book. But before he is introduced, both the characters themselves and the readers sense that someone important, someone with power and authority is coming. And without knowing how he'll save, we know, we somehow know that he can John wants us to feel that as we read these lines. This will be a book about the eternal Word who defies our full understanding by being both God and with God. And with these simple words, if we stop to consider them, as it seems clear John wants us to do, our expectations about what will take place in the pages that follow are piqued. We sense the power and the authority of the one who is coming. And even if we don't know what he'll do or how he'll save, we somehow know that he is able.
the ability and the authority to save is specifically related to the fact that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And this passage is full of anticipation for meeting that person. Which is why I think these verses, these opening lines from John's Gospel, are perfect for us to read during Advent. Because they do and they help us do what we aim to do during Advent as we anticipate the coming of the eternal word into the world that he made. And the fact that this person that John is introducing to us to is divine, who is one with God and yet distinct, is the key that opens the lock of God's mission to save humanity and restore creation. Later on in Scripture, in the book of 1 John, we find one of the most famous and most misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. There, John, the the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, uses similarly brief and profound language to describe God by saying simply that God is love. And I think often when we read that verse in 1 John 4, 8, we put ourselves at its center. When we read that God is love, our natural human tendency is to assume that he must be talking about us that God is love for me. And we do that a lot, I think. We put ourselves at the center of things because we have a habit of putting ourselves at the center of the universe. But when John points out that one of the essential foundational characteristics of God is that he is love, he is pointing to something that has always been true of God because it's simply part of who he is. At his core, He is love, and He always has been. And there was a time when that was true before you and I were here to be loved by Him. Before God made the heavens and the earth, before He made Adam and Eve, before all of this, love was already at the center of God's nature. When there was nothing but God Himself, love was already a defining characteristic. But love requires an object, something to cherish, something to have affection for and to revel in. And so the fact that God's love is true can only be true because for all time, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have loved one another perfectly. For all eternity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have existed in perfect love, perfect unity, perfect harmony with one another because love is at the very core, the very center of his essence, and he loves within the Trinity. So when we read in 1 John 4, 8, when we discover there that God is love, we need to see that he's had an eternity of practice before you or I entered the frame. We get to enjoy the God who has for all eternity perfectly love. And it is because he has always perfectly loved, that he perfectly loves us. Christ has the authority to save because he is God, and he has the ability to save because he is perfect love, lived out for all time within the Trinity. The love of God for, is, that we experience is one that is made possible by the fact that the eternal word was with God and was God. God is love because God is Trinity. And all of this, 
all of the significance of this eternally perfect, eternally glorious, eternally ruling, eternally loving being is what's loaded in to the opening lines, these opening two lines of John's gospel. And well before we even hear his name in this book, John wants us to know. He wants us to sense and believe that the one who is coming will be able to do what no one and nothing else could that he will be able to heal what nothing else could heal, that he alone will be able to redeem what nothing else could redeem because he was with God and was God. John wants us to get a hold of the fact that the Word is someone worthy of worship whose place is on a divine throne. And therefore, he has authority and ability to do what no one and nothing else could. Yet, Just a few verses later, there is a sharp contrast with the lofty heights of these opening verses, because once we get to verse 14, we see, as we did last week, that the eternal Word became flesh. He became a human being. Rather than remaining on His throne, He stepped out of glory and into the world that He Himself created. He took on frail flesh, the frail flesh of the people that He rules, and lived a life among the people that he weaved together. With an eternity of love in his heart, he willingly stepped into the world, driven to go by the perfect love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's what we celebrate at Christmas time every year, that the one who was God and was with God became one of us in his love for us. He was with us and he was one of us. And the significance of that revelation grows the longer we reflect on how far down Christ stepped in order to do that. What's on display for us in the opening lines of John's gospel is that Jesus is all at once higher and more glorious than we will ever comprehend, and at the very same time, willingly lower and more humble than we we will ever truly grasp. Paul reflects on the gulf between Jesus' throne and the humble life he lived here in Philippians 2. He was encouraging believers in the town of Philippi to have humility like Christ's, to have unity with one another by having Christ-like willingness to count others more significant than yourselves. And he does that because in the Philippian church, um, people were facing persecution and hardship, which was leading to infighting within the church. The people in the church are taking out their frustrations on one another, and the solution that Paul points them to in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians is to look to Christ, who demonstrated humility to a degree that we can scarcely comprehend. And he says in verses 6 and 7, "'Have this in mind among yourselves, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. The pinnacle example of humility is Christ himself, who was owed glory and praise for all eternity, yet who willingly laid them aside to come here. And Paul points to what we celebrate at Christmas, not only as an example of Christ's humility, but as a compelling reason for us to be humble in our relationships with one another. Christmas is a humbling thing. It reminds us that even when we are disrespected or slighted or sinned against, when we are not treated fairly and we feel the sting of injustice, Christ 
felt it more. What he was owed was worship. What he deserved was to be lifted high by all creation, and what he chose instead was to take on flesh, to come here, to be one of us, to endure humiliation and shame out of love for you and me. It's a humility that is put on display in the scenes that we remember every Christmas. Luke chapter 2 records the circumstances of Jesus' welcome into the world. In those days, Luke writes, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Even though I feel like I've read Luke chapter 2 dozens and dozens of times, this year, as I read it, I'm struck by details I hadn't really noticed before. Joseph and Mary are compelled to make a trek from their home in Galilee to Joseph's ancestral home in Bethlehem because Caesar wants to conduct a census. It's a journey of around 80 miles up into the low mountains where Bethlehem was, and Luke records that they went up from Galilee into Bethlehem. And even though they weren't climbing the Alps, the people who have made the same journey report that it is a somewhat difficult five- or six-day ascent. And Mary, who is very pregnant at the time, makes the trip most likely on foot. Now, I don't think I'd ever really stop to consider that detail until this year. I would have a hard time making that journey, let alone my wife, who is currently at the stage of pregnancy, generally, generally referred to, I think, as being a duplex. I can only imagine how it would go if I came home and told her that we had to go on a six-day backpacking trip starting tomorrow. But Joseph and Mary don't have any say in the matter. There's no exemption given for the fact that she is going to have a baby. And then once they arrive, there is no room for them at the inn. It's a detail I think Luke includes to demonstrate the willingness of Christ to humble himself. Though the king of kings ought to have been given every right, every honor, every privilege, he is relegated to the barn. And rather than being seated on a throne, he is swaddled and laid in a feeding trough. No part of Jesus' arrival is glamorous, but every detail is glorious because it reveals the willingness of the Son to humble himself and dwell among his people, as John says at the beginning of verse 14. And though John might have said more simply that the Word became flesh and lived among us, he doesn't use that word, a much more common word. Instead, he uses a word that is loaded with meaning, full of historical significance and cultural imagery. Unfortunately, in English, it can be hard to see that, but it turns out that the word translated dwell in John 1.14 appears all over the Old Testament. It's the verbal form of the word tent, so if you wanted a really wooden and literal translation of John 1.14, it would say that the word became flesh and tented among us. And that may make even less sense to us, but for Jewish readers in the first century who knew their Bibles, it was a signal that was hard to miss. In passages all over the Old Testament, we read about another tent and the one who dwelt there. 
One example comes from Exodus 40, in which we read that the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in that translation of the passage that John, of that passage that John and most of the people in the first century were using, the words for tent and tabernacle are the exact same word. And that's because the tabernacle, the first temple structure that the Israelites had built at God's direction, was itself a sort of tent. It was the tent of meeting between God and mankind. And even though it's an incredibly elaborate tent, and chapter after chapter in the book of Exodus is dedicated to God's detailed instructions uh, about the intricacies of its design, it is still a tent because it was designed to be portable because at the time Israel was a nation with no home. They were wanderers, but in their wandering, God was with them and he met with them in this tent where their sin was atoned for by the observance of sacrifices and where they were declared clean. It was the place where God's glory would descend, where the high priest would make a sacrificial offering in God's presence once every year, and where God would literally dwell among his people. And because of that, it was the epicenter of religious and cultural practice for God's people. God had made a way for his rebellious people, stained with sin and perpetually failing to uphold his righteous statutes, for these people to know him and to know his love and to know his holiness. It was an ocean they could have never crossed, but he did not leave them there. He came to tabernacle among them, to dwell among them. And in grace, he called his people to come near. And John wants us to have all of that in mind because he uses that word. When we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the fulfillment of all of the hope of the Old Testament temple. Because in Christ, God does not simply call us to come near him. He has come to us. He has stepped out of glory and off of his throne into flesh. The highest and most praiseworthy king of kings has come down into the world to be here with us and to be one of us. He has come near to us. And even if we only know this about him so far, even if the only part of the Bible we know is these opening lines from John 1, even if we don't know how he'll save, we know that he is able. In him, where divine glory and Christ's humility meet, our sin will be atoned for, and God's love will be accomplished for us. John wants us to grasp who has come, that in Christ the one who came to dwell among his people had the humility necessary for him to do so, so that we will know that he alone can do what no one and nothing else could. In love, Christ humbly came to dwell here, something that we celebrate every Christmas. And in that same love, Christ humbled himself, according to Philippians 2, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Jesus Christ, Eternal glory and humble self-sacrifice collided, driven together by the love of a triune God. He came to be where we are in order to take our place as one of us. And this morning and this Advent, as we consider what heights he was willing to step down from for us, we rejoice in the love he bears us 
to do so. Let's pray together this morning. God, we are humbled by your humility this morning. And this Advent season, as we consider what it means that you would come and take on flesh for us, uh, we ask that you would open our eyes a little more and a little more each day and each year to glimpse the sheer glory that you laid aside in humility and love to come here, to be with us, to be one of us, to die for us. We are humbled by your humility that we celebrate this Christmas time. And God, our response to you, all we have to give you is to receive love from you and to praise you in response. You are our God and we are your people. We come before you this morning in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.